Good morning, Four Oaks. Paul Gilbert, one of the pastors here. So glad you're with us in person, online, if you're joining that way. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles, though, to Romans chapter 1. Believe it or not, this is sermon number 4 in our series that we're calling Rags to Righteous, The Power of God in Romans. And just as a reminder, as we are walking through this sermon series, Romans is, a, is an amazing book. It's a deep book. At different points, it's a, it's a complex book in terms of its arguments. And so to sort of help us along, you can stop by the Hub. There's a resource center out by the Hub where we have various books, commentaries, Bible study guides that can help you um, walk along this. Also, re- remember that every weekday morning we do our pastoral devotionals. And what we're doing this season is we are diving into different topics or verses or themes or concepts that maybe we don't have all the time in the world to, to download during the sermon, but we do that together Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. You can stream it on Facebook, on the church website. But for this morning, though, we are in Romans chapter 1. So I'm going to invite you, if you can, if you're willing, able to stand for the reading of God's Word. This is a hard scripture. And so as we're reading this, just be praying that God would open eyes and ears. You give me the words to say, give us the capacity as his people to receive his word. Let's begin at verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see... And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Let's pray. Father, help us not to hear and read these verses outside of the larger context of this book and why Paul is writing. He's writing so that we would understand your righteousness. And in understanding that, flee to Christ. In Christ and Christ alone do we find salvation from our own selves, from our hearts, from our evil inclinations, our sinful desires and acts. And so, Father, we just really pray fundamentally that you would have your way with us this morning through this text. You give me the words to say. And, Father, that above all, you would be honored and glorified. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. You may take a seat. There are three themes I want us to focus on this morning. Three themes I want to draw your attention 
two, and here they are. Number one, we're going to talk about divine abandonment. Two, dishonorable passions. And three, debased minds. All right? Abandonment passions in minds. It's going to be a happy Sunday, I promise. All right? Let's talk about divine abandonment. You'll notice there are three different times in this passage we just read where it says God gave them up. We see that in verse 24, God gave them up to their lust. Uh, Verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And finally, again, in verse 28, where God gave them up to a debased mind. Now, the word give up, we talked a little bit about this last week, but we're going to really camp out on it this week. That, that phrase, God gave them up, it literally means to hand over or to deliver, but not just to deliver, but deliver in full, deliver completely. And we said that last time, this denotes the idea of God sometimes letting people pursue their own evil desires unhindered by his common grace. In other words, he just sort of lifts his restraining hand and he lets men and women follow after the natural sinful desires of their heart. But understand something, and this is really, really important. This is not merely a passive judgment. This is not a a passive judgment where God just sort of lets us experience the consequences of our actions. You know, kind of like a parent would when their child refuses to wear a coat to school. And what's the natural consequence? Well, they freeze to death during recess, right? About the only one too soon? Okay, we, we, you get it, right? That, that, that's not what, that's involved, but that's not all that's involved. See, this is an active verb, and it has its roots in the Old Testament, and we hear it all the time, right? When it says that God, what? He hands over the enemies to Israel. He delivers them. He passes that judgment on. It's an active verb. God delivers Paul says, in a specific way. Here's, here's another way to think about it. Think about a judge who provides over the, presides over the trial of a criminal who is convicted by a jury. He's been declared guilty by the foreman of the jury, and now he stands before the judge. And what is the judge's role in that time? The, role doesn't just simp- the judge doesn't just simply rehearse the natural consequences, and this is what the law says. It is the judge who still must pronounce the sentence. It's still the judge that has to hand the criminal over to law enforcement. He actively imposes a sentence and what? Sends him away. That's all wrapped up in this this idea here of divine abandonment. And this happens when a people, a society, a culture so flagrantly and willfully suppresses the truth about God and unrighteousness that God hands them over. To whom? Themselves. Now, when we think about our own culture and what we might observe and watch and see, we very much are going to see this sort of dynamic in play. And we might wonder, how did we get here? How is it that we have become a culture that clearly is seeking to throw off any and all restraints. How do we find ourselves, you might be asking, particularly in the West, in this situation? I've mentioned this author before, but Carl Truman, who's a professor and author and ordained minister, 
He's written a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and he talks about the dominant worldview of our time, which he calls expressive individualism. Well, what is that? See, expressive individualism finds ultimate authority not in God, not in an institution, not in the church, not in the Bible, not in the family, nothing external to the self. Rather, the self is ultimate. It is up to each person to create and construct their own reality out of their self, their feelings, their impulses, their intuitions. No external authorities allowed. And this is, and this is our worldview where we are now telling little kids, you can be literally, physically, biologically, anyone you want to be. You can construct your own identity. And Truman traces this out sociologically. He talks about the Enlightenment and French philosophy and French guys' names we can't pronounce and German guys' names we can't pronounce, right? Talks about the sexual revolution, and it's a fascinating read. And he does a magnificent job of tracing out where culturally we have gone over the last several hundred years. But what Romans 1 does, this is so important, it gives us the reason behind that reason. It gives us the theological reality that stands behind our descent into moral chaos. In a word, what's happening? God is giving us over. You see, for every people, culture, group, individual who presses God to the margins, who attempts to sequester him in the public square, to make him more of like a private, personal deity, Suppress the truth of God publicly. God says, according to this text, I will have none of it. He hands them over to their own desires and proclivities. He lifts his restraining hand. And please understand something. There's nothing so terrifying as to be left alone by God. Let me just say this this morning, Christian. If you know Christ... If you are in Christ, God never leaves you alone. God pursues you. He woos you. He calls you. He will go hunt you down if he needs to and often does. No one or nothing will ever be able to snatch you out of his hand. The bosom of Christ is the safest place for any of us to ever be. So fundamentally, the first thing we want to say here is stop running. Stop suppressing, begin confessing, and trusting, and repenting. Now, as we move into these, the second and third point, what we're really asking now is what are the telltale signs of divine abandonment for a culture? And we're going here because this is where Paul goes. And we're going to see two distinguishing marks of a culture that is, finds itself collapsing upon itself. And the first element or theme we see is this idea of dishonorable passions. So let me read again the relevant verses. Verse 24, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies, to dishonorable passions. And it's obvious that Paul has a very specific kind of passion he's talking about here. The kind of passions he, he mentions in referring to are sexual. 
And Paul is describing here in general terms sexual brokenness. Misplaced and disordered sexuality of all kinds. And what we have to ask is, now why is it that Paul wants to talk about sexual immorality at this point? Why is it that sexual morality, immorality, is at the heart of any culture that is dying or being eroded from the inside out? And guys, this is ubiquitous. This is the case all throughout history. Oftentimes, it's not the external forces, it is the internal ones that bring a country down, bring a culture down, bring a society down, bring a person down. And I think the reason Paul goes here in highlighting the very essence of what it means for God to give someone over to their own sin is that it's the sin that most clearly demonstrates idolatry. Now look back at verse 25. You see this here. The dishonoring of their bodies, Paul says, 24, then verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, right? See, sexual immorality is the sin which most clearly demonstrates and puts on display the nature of idolatry where we redirect the worship that is to be given only to God and we worship ourselves. We worship our bodies. We worship other people's bodies. We go there in our mind, in our heart, and oftentimes in our deeds. And of course, Paul echoes this. This is why he says in 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. See, to pursue sexual expression outside the bonds of the covenant marriage is to mar the image of God that is contained in that very person. Men, when you view things you shouldn't view, you are obscuring the image of God. There's something about the worship of self and the body that is particularly destructive to cultures, to nations, to cities, to families, to marriages, to your own soul. Now, Paul now goes one step further. See, while all sexual brokenness outside of marriage is idolatry, Paul says there is a particular kind of sexual sin that at its very core, is the essence of what it means to worship the body. And he talks about homosexual sin. Look at verse 26. He talks about women exchanging natural relations for those contrary to nature. The men likewise committing shameless acts. And we have to ask, why does Paul not only focus on sin, but why is Paul focusing on homosexual sin here? And the key, I think, is found in the terms natural relations or those sorts of relationships that are contrary to nature. See, and I think this is what Paul is doing. Paul is saying, is talking about the fact that since the foundation of the world, all mankind, listen, believers and non-believers, this is, this is a general truth applied to all creation, obvious to see, People did not have to have it explained to them the very nature and essence of the complementarity of the sexes. That was not a great mystery. They could see it biologically. 
They could see it emotionally. They could see it physically. They could see it spiritually. Now understand something. Paul is not saying that God has a special judgment for homosexuality. He's just simply saying here, it's evident. It's so evident that even non-believers understand it. Now they may try to suppress it. They may try to push it down. But Paul says nothing could be more obvious. There, there, are, there are two genders and two genders only. Gender is not a binary construct. It's, it's binary, but it's not a social construct. And this is evident. And we hear oftentimes, just follow the science, follow the science. Nothing could be clearer, right? Where this becomes particularly dangerous, there are proponents, self-professing Christians who maintain that God does, in fact, permit loving, monogamous, same-sex marriages. And they would, and you may say, well, Pastor Paul, how, how would they deal with a text like this? Well, they would maintain that Paul is not denouncing homosexual relationships per se, but he's denouncing predatory, sexualized relationships between men and boys that was often found in the ancient world. But he is here leaving room for committed loving, monogamous, homosexual relationships. And there's three things we want to say about this, okay? Three things. How would we respond to this? Number one, if this was how Paul wanted to affirm monogamous same-sex relationships, he picked a really strange way to do it, didn't he? It's not very obvious. If this is what Paul's trying to communicate, we could say, Paul, you weren't super clear here. It kind of sounded to me like you said it wasn't, Right? Second thing we want to say, it ignores the context of the passage. And the whole context of the passage is Paul using homosexuality and specifically in sexual perversion generally to show how we are in the process of suppressing the truth and misusing our bodies not according to God's design. That's true, by the way, whether a relationship is a homosexual relationship or a promiscuous heterosexual relationship. Paul says it's, it's all the same in terms of the way it functions as an idol in people's lives. So to say something different here, I think misses the context. But third, please hear this. It ignores the clear testimony of the rest of Scripture and the meaning of marriage. Church, as believers, we do not have to be embarrassed of calling good what God calls good or calling evil what God calls evil. Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians chapter 5 that marriage reflects the image of God. In other words, man and woman both possess qualities that are intrinsically male and female. And please hear this. Men reflect the image of God in a different way than their wives do or women do. And women reflect the image of God in a different way than men do. And it takes both of these things together to give us the truest and clearest expression of God. And it's a, and now you may say, how in the world? It's a mystery. I get it. But we understand the nature of that mystery clearly proclaims the reality of God. See, this is why I think sexual perversion of all kinds goes hand in hand with the fall of a culture or a society. The image of God is being defaced. And when the image of God is defaced in our bodies, guess what? A true knowledge of God is obscured. 
It's like, the, it's like the dark side of the force just kind of hovers over us. And we can't see clearly. We can't think clearly. We are at times self-deceived. See, this is why we have to talk about this, by the way. Particularly in a culture where sexual perversion is not just tolerated, but guess what? It's celebrated. And if you don't celebrate it, if you don't toe the cultural orthodoxy, then you cannot participate. Go home. We don't want to hear your views or perspectives or participation. Now, for the culture that celebrates unrighteousness, what is God's response? Let's look back at the text. He uses an interesting phrase here when he says, receiving in themselves the due penalty. Please understand something, guys. This is, when, God, when it says God is handing over, this is not, I said this last week, this is not speaking merely of a future eschatological judgment at the end times when God will come and judge the living and the dead. It's not talking about that. That will happen, but that's not what Paul is referencing here. Paul is referencing a present judgment that's happening. And the present just judgment that's happening, and we can think about the behavior and practice of transgenderism or homosexuality or polyamorous relationships or the billions of dollars being poured into the porn industry. Themselves, all of these things are the judgment. They are a sign they're a proclamation. They're, they're, they're a testimony to a culture of its own wickedness, of its own despair, of its own blindedness. And future generations and cultures will look back and say, how were they so self-deceived? God gave them over. God gave them up. Terrifying thing to be handed over by God. This brings us to our last point. And the second characteristic of a culture that's being handed over, debased minds. Let's look back at the text. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. That could also be translated, by the way, an unfit mind. Unapproved or rejected. Now, when someone has too much to drink and we don't want them to drive home, what do we say? They're unfit to drive. Or when a politician who engages in notorious behavior, we might say, that person is not fit to lead. So when Paul uses that sort of terminology here, what he is saying and he's applying this idea to God is that mankind looks at God and looks at himself and says, God, you are unfit to be my king. You're unfit to be my Lord. You are, you're not qualified to speak to the issues of my heart and life. Now understand, we never say it that simply, right? It's always much more sophisticated. It's always much more nuanced. But fundamentally, that's oftentimes what's happening. We look at this area in our lives. We, we, we see the sovereignty of God, the power of God, the kingship of God. We know what it means 
for us to lovingly submit that to him. God's going to change us. God's going to work. We know that can be painful at times. And so sometimes we just turn God off and say, he's not fit. He is not fit to get involved in my marriage. He is not fit to get involved with my parenting. He's not fit to get involved with my business. He is not fit to get involved, fill in the blank for you. He's not qualified. And Paul says, when that happens, when a culture, a family, a marriage, a person takes that sort of posture, what does it say? Look back at the text. It says, they are filled with all manner of unrighteousness. You see, Paul follows that statement with an extensive list of vices. I mean, this is the vice list to top all vice lists, right? I mean, whoa. And I mean, just examples, right? He, he goes very general, but then he goes very specific. He talks about unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, but then he like starts messing, right? Envy, murder, strife, deceit, gossip, slanderers, haughty, boastful, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. We have to ask, why does Paul bring up these litany of vices? He was just talking about sexual sin. He was just talking about homosexual sin. Why is he bringing this up now? And it's very clear. Guys, it would be very, very tempting, very, very easy for us to stop right at verse 27 and say, there we go. Good job, Pastor Paul. Wait, way to talk down at the culture. Way to put your finger on it. Way to, call, way, way to call a spade a spade. Thank goodness. We never say it like this. This is what happens. Thank goodness, Lord, I'm not like that sinner. And Paul wants to say, no, 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 no. Before you leave chapter one, Four Oaks, he wants you to know we're just like that. We're sinners as well. We who pass judgment self-righteously, we're in the same boat. We're no better off. There is none who is righteous, Paul says, not even one. All of us stand under the judgment of God. That is Paul's point here. He does not want to leave chapter one. Now, next week, he's going to talk to the religious folk, okay, the Jews in the church in Rome. But now he's speaking to Gentiles, and he, and he wants them to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, it's not the guy down the street who has the issue. You have the issue. Look in your own heart. Now, embracing a worldview that's hostile to God, whether it's sexual or philosophical or otherwise, incurs one level of God's wrath or judgment. But Paul has a specific, a specific warning to these things. That, that He has a specific warning not only to those who do them, look, look at verse 32, but to those who lead others to do so. Paul seems, let me read the verse, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And I think Paul is pointing to a reality here, that there are varying levels and degrees of response ability when it comes to our own sin. All of us are responsible for our own sin. All of us must stand before God and have culpability and agency and choice. We can't blame it on our upbringing, our parents, our cultural conditions, 
All those things are important. They all have their place. But fundamentally, at the end of the day, we all stand naked before God. Guilty enough. But then Paul says, but there's another class of people too. And these are the ones who aren't just doing it, but they're leading others astray to do it as well. They're giving approval. In other words, they're, they're literally standing over to the side and clapping their hands and cheering unrighteousness on. Luke 17 has something really serious to say about this. And he said to his disciples, listen, oh, listen, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. When you are in a position of authority, whether it's pastor, elder, community group leader, shepherd, father, husband, mother, teacher, all of us have realms of authority in our life. And it is a sacred thing. It's a vital thing. It's an important thing. So, for example, came out a couple days ago that the city commission of Tallahassee is taking up a resolution. And this resolution says that as a, it doesn't have any binding power. It's just it's a declaration of this is what we, the city commission, hold up for you, Tallahassee. This is, this is where we would love to see us go. This is the spirit that we would love to see us imbibe. And basically... The resolution says that as a city, we should stand behind and support all reproductive freedom because we support health care for everyone, and I quote, for their overall health and safety. And we have to ask, whose health? Whose safety? Whose rights? Not the most vulnerable. And when we have a death machine called Planned Parenthood that makes over a quarter of a billion dollars a year on calling evil good, that that is a serious, that's unholy ground that's being tread upon. And it's given to all of us who have positions of authority to lead with care, to lead with humility, to lead with kindness. But ultimately, Four Oaks, and you know this, Our level of cultural analysis can't stop there, right? There there he goes, there she goes. Thank goodness, Lord, I'm not like him. It has to go deeper. It has to become much more personal. Because after all, that's Paul's central message throughout these first three chapters of Romans. Paul says you're going to have to get an ugly view of yourself before the gospel can become particularly precious. And that's what he's doing here. That's Paul's central message, that none are righteous, not even one. So here's a few things we, I encourage you to prayerfully do as we wind this up. Number one, where have I suppressed the truth of God when it hasn't been convenient? I don't say if you have. I say where you have, because we all have. What have you, number two, given approval to in the list of vices right here? Maybe it's not sexual immorality. Maybe it's something much more deceptive. Think about sexual immorality. At least you know it's there. 
call a spade a spade. It's, it's, I was doing this and now I'm not doing this. But some of these, they're much more subtle and thus much more dangerous in a, in a way. Whether it's deceit or maliciousness or slander or boasting or being faithless or heartless. So, number two, where have I given approval to these things? Maybe by my own passivity, by what I watch, by what I listen to, by the unrighteousness that I laugh at. Number three, finally, how have I imbibed the spirit of the age when it comes to my autonomy, self-orientation, and selfishness? In other words, where have I been right at home with this idea of expressive individualism? Maybe you've sanitized it. Maybe you've sanctified it. Maybe you're not visiting brothels or visiting porn websites or engaging in illicit relationships, but it can be much more subtle than that. It can be much... It, we are, the, the wealthier we are, the easier it is to disguise. And so we have to say... How have I imbibed the spirit of the age when it comes to my autonomy, my self-orientation, my selfishness? Now, what in the world, how do we close this down? I think the whole point of this, remember, the church in Rome would get this letter and it would be read to them by the messenger. And this wasn't like it was read in one setting, but it was copied down repeatedly and copies distributed so that people could hear it and read it as often as they could. And so this was, Paul meant these letters to be studied, to be parsed, to be looked over. And I think one of his crucial points here is that every time we get through one of these sections, he wants us to run back to Romans 1, 16 and 17 and be reminded of an even greater truth. And the greater truth is that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, without exception. For in it, meaning the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. See, it would be very easy after a sermon like this to say, Pastor Paul, has God given up on me? Has he given me up? I think Paul would want to remind us, and he's going to tell us this later in Romans, that God gave up his own son. God handed him over. He forsook his own son so that you might be drawn, reconciled to him. See, in Christ, God gave up his son so that he could go and retrieve you for himself. And so we don't in here, we run back to the gospel. We run back to Christ. And we say in unison with Paul, I am the man. And by the way, if you think Paul is exempting himself from this, wait till Romans chapter 7. No one's exempted, he says, which is why we need Jesus. The first step to embracing faith in Christ is knowing you need faith in Christ. Do you know him? God is calling you today to come home. Let's pray.